0: listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. If you'd like to learn more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now this week's sermon in the series Identity, a study on the book of Ephesians. You would send your spirit one more time uh, to fall fresh upon me this morning, a broken man in need of grace, but you have given me the stewardship of grace to proclaim to the nations, your son, the reconciler of you and man, the redeemer of all mankind. And so I'm here to do it. And I ask for your grace to do it well. I'm broken and I'm needy and I have nothing to say apart from you. And so Holy Spirit, fall fresh on me, awaken in me and in your people. Jesus just move through your church, so that they're more like you, whatever that means for your glory, Amen. Thanks, you guys have a seat. It'd be awesome. If you're visiting, um, I'm Bill. I'm one of the pastors here, teaching pastor. I'm glad you're here this morning um, to worship with us. Um, go ahead and turn if you haven't already to Ephesians chapter three as we kind of continue through our series in Ephesians three. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. Grab it. It should be on page 634. That's where we're at. And let me just say this. If you don't have a Bible, come to us and we'll give you one. If you have one, bring it. Don't use the slides. I mean, you can use them. But the slides are for the visitor and for the people that have like three kids on their laps crawling through their face. You know, and so they can't hold a Bible. Bring your Bible. Um, Mark it up. Write in it. And uh, take notes so you can go back and look at it. We want our folks to be biblically literate. And uh, it's part of equipping you guys. And so please do that. This chapter, chapter 3, especially this passage today, is one of the more difficult passages in the book. Not because it's hard to understand. Structurally it's hard because it's like another run-on sentence, part 3. But more importantly, and, and where the difficulty lies is in the content. Because this is a passage that talks a little bit about suffering. The fact that life is hard. The fact that life is difficult. People, you know, often think maybe that the hardest part of my job might be three services every week. And, you know, it really isn't. I mean, don't get me wrong. If I'm doing it in 30 years, three services, I'm going to be like, what are we doing here? I mean, but the hardest part about my job is hearing y'all's stories. Stories of struggling. My mom has cancer. I have cancer, Pastor Bill. My husband wants nothing to do with Jesus. He's walked away from the faith. I can't find a job. We're going to have to move back home. We can't pay the water bill. Can you help us? My marriage is in shambles, my husband's addicted to porn, alcohol, my kids are wandering. That's the hardest part of this job. That's the hardest part. And the beauty of the scripture is it is very straightforward and it pulls zero punches when it comes to suffering. It's not ignorant of it, it doesn't sugarcoat it. It deals with the reality that it it will happen. And counter the false teaching out there that if you just love Jesus, you won't suffer. The problem with that is Jesus suffered more than any. And his first 12 followers were all killed, save John. They tried to kill him. They tried to boil him in oil. They couldn't kill him, so they put him on an island. But they killed the rest of them. It deals with the reality, the fact that Jesus suffered unjustly, horrifically, undeservedly. All his early followers did. And it's great to know because of that, that you have a God who has entered into suffering. He has tasted it. He is not immune for it, from it. And so he can identify with you in the middle of it. Because it happens. And we come to a passage in Ephesians 3 verses 1 through 11 where Paul is going to deal with the reality of suffering. But it's unique in this way. Usually what Paul or Peter or some of these apostles do is there's a group of suffering people over here and they write a letter to encourage them. First Peter, for example, is one of those letters. And in this case, that's not what's going on. The Ephesians are not the ones suffering, although there's probably stuff going on in their lives like everyone else. But Paul is the one Who's suffering in this case. And what he's doing here is he's saying, I want you Ephesians to learn from my suffering. I want to encourage you in the middle of my suffering. And and that's backwards from what we expect. But he's going to teach us, and there's I think three important lessons for us this morning. That we need to grasp, that we need to get when it comes to suffering. So let me start off reading verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And you see that little dash there? That's not Paul. didn't write that. Okay? That's an English editor who has a master's degree in literature and doesn't like Pauline grammar. Because what Paul does here is he he does what every English teacher tells you to not do. He doesn't finish the sentence. He goes all ADD on us. And it's like he moves his hand, he hears the chain rattling, and he gets distracted like a guy, typical guy. This one's Holy Spirit inspiration distraction, Holy Spirit ADD, right? Because what he does then is rambles for 12 verses and goes off on this tangent. And it's as if in verse 13, he's like, oh, wait, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering, which is your glory. And so this point of this passage is what? You've got 13 verses and Paul is closing it and saying, I don't want you to be, I you to be discouraged. I don't want you to lose hope. I want to give you hope in the middle of my suffering. And this little run-on sentence that he goes off is actually his encouragement. It's the Holy Spirit's way of encouraging us in kind of a backwards kind of way. And so we're going to look at this passage and find some encouragement and some lessons about suffering the Apostle Paul, but let me do this first, just for a few minutes, because some of us are new Christians, some of us are not Christians, and you don't know what the Bible has to say about this. And some of you have been Christians for a long time, but you've never been taught. Let me kind of, for a few minutes, just develop your theology of suffering for a minute and affliction, because the first thing that happens when we always fight, face hard times is we always ask, "Why? Why me? Why? Why is this happening? Why is God letting this happen?" And and we could go in, in category after category after category and kind of define these things. But the Bible, or if you look at the Bible, or if you look at at, at history, if you look at people's lives, you can fit suffering down into just a couple big picture categories. And let me kind of define some of these for you so you can have a better, get your arms around this. One category of suffering, or one type of suffering we see, is common suffering, or what we call Adamic suffering. This is, you're on Team Adam, you're on Team Adam's planet, you face suffering because he sinned, and Eve sinned, and sin entered into the world, and that means there's hurricanes, and that means there's car accidents, and that means there's cancer, and that means there's Spouses that leave, and that means there's all these things. There's brokenness. It wasn't the way God created it, because man rebelled and ushered sin into this creation, and now it's broken. And every one of us faces this. No one can escape. You will all face common Adamic suffering. You get a cold, you get the flu, you stub your toe. Adamic suffering. If you're like me and you're getting old, you pull your muscles in your sleep, Adamic suffering. All right, that's what it is. And the only hope and the only relief from it is resurrection or the return of Christ. That's the only hope to escape it. That's the only end to it. Everyone faces it, right? Second type we see, So what we call it consequential or, or carnal suffering. This is suffering because of choices made. You eat at Mickey D's every day, you die at 31, you get heart failure, you have a stroke. You have issues with your knees because you're overweight. Whatever it is, it's a choice. I choose to eat unhealthy. Well, then, then that's the consequence. I choose to drink myself silly. You have liver problems. I choose to play video games all day long and not wash my hair. I never get married. That's the way it works, all right? All right. That's the way it works. It's a choice. A consequence. But it's not just your choices. It's not just what you reap, what you sow. Sometimes you reap what other people sow. So you have a deadbeat dad who's caught up in gambling or alcoholism, and they lose the house. The kids suffer. Why? Because of choices of dad. You have a disrespectful mother who's always slandering and slamming her husband. you got disrespectful kids. It's a choice that she made. The kids suffer the consequences. You got a drunk driver. He chooses to get in a car. He puts somebody in a wheelchair. His choice is this person's suffering. You have a group of racist people over here Nazi Germany, racist in this country, whatever it is elitists, classists. Because they don't like this person, this person is persecuted. This person's alienated. This person suffers. That's the way it is. Common qu- choices. Maybe you're, maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you're in, in rebellion, and God has brought discipline on your life. Because your choice, there's consequences, right? So there's consequential or there's carnal suffering. And then the final type or the third type would be Christian suffering. This is because you love Jesus, people hate you. Because you take a stand on the Bible, people despise you, think you're an idiot. Because you say, you know what, marriage is supposed to be this because this is how God defined it. And then people don't like you. This is that pastor in Iran who's in jail because he was a Muslim and now he's a Christian. This is our missionaries in China, underground. Can't tell you the last names, but Dave and Amy, pray for them. They're threatening to get kicked out of the country right now because they're in the underground church planning movement and they've been found out, they've been discovered. And so at the end of the school term, they're teaching in college right now, they're threatening to kick them out. Because they follow Jesus. Maybe it's demonic, maybe it's in the angelic realm where you're under some sort of demonic persecution. Why? Because you're a follower of Jesus. Whatever it is, because you love God, because you're a follower of him, and because everyone hates him, because the world hates Jesus, they hated him, they killed him, people hate you. That's Christian suffering, right? And then the last type, and not the type to be taken lightly, is the I have no clue why suffering. I don't know why. And Christians need to get used to saying, I don't know. You just need to get better at saying that. Because sometimes you just have no clue. And it's better to just go into a situation and give a hug than try to give an explanation. Romans 8.28, God works all things together, isn't that great? We do not want to be like Job's friends. Remember Job, most righteous man living? He loses his entire business. He's a loaded rich man. He loses everything. He loses every one of his kids. All he has is his wife who tells him to curse God and die. He's he's afflicted physically. He's got a piece of glass, and he's scraping himself because he's itching so badly. He is devastated, and his buddies show up, and what do they say? You need to repent. You're a sinner. God is judging you because you're a sin. Was he a sinner? Yes. Was he in sin? Is that why this was happening? No, this was demonic. God was allowing Satan to afflict him to prove that Job would not turn. So we don't want to be like that when we go into a situation and someone's devastated. Or you just you have sin in your life. Because what if it's common suffering? What if it's just because they're in a fallen world, you're going to go tell them to repent? They need you to comfort them, and they need you to love them, and they need you to pray for them. They don't need to hear repent. Or maybe, it's, maybe it is uh, consequential because of their faith. Maybe it's Christian suffering, and they need to be spurred on to righteousness and not, not told to repent. We just need to be wise and keep our mouths shut and be the body in love. And if it's very clear that this is sin, and you better be sure, then you can say, you know what, you've blown your life up. You're not married because you play video games and don't wash your hair. That you repent of. We need to be the body. We need to be the body. And by grace, see people through this. So that's a little framework. Go back to our text, Ephesians 3. So Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus... And so when he says prisoner, he's in jail. He is right now in Rome, under house arrest. He's chained to a guy every day, all day long. Okay? And, and the reason why, goes back in Acts 21, you can read it, he, they assume that he brought this guy Trophimus, a Greek, into the temple. He didn't, but they assume he did. So there's this big riot. He's about to get killed. This Roman guy pulls him out of it and rescues him. And he pulls him up the top of the stairs and Paul turns around and sees this great angry crowd. And he's on top of these stairs. He said, I'm going to preach. Can I preach? He says, go ahead and preach. So he preaches. He tells him his story and how God saved him and how all these things. And at the end, the response of the people was this. They say, such a man should not be allowed to live. That's how you know as a preacher, they don't like you. They want to kill him. Forty guys vow that day that they're not going to eat until he's dead. He escapes that. And he spends some time in Jerusalem. Eventually, he realizes he's not going to get a fair trial. So he says, I appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he could do that. He could appeal to the high court, to Caesar himself. Festus says, you know what? You want to go to Caesar? Go to Caesar. Puts him on a ship. It sinks. He, gets, he lands on an island. He gets bit by a snake. Everyone's watching to see if he's going to die. He doesn't die. He eventually makes it to Rome. He sits there for two years waiting for his accusers, chained to this Roman guard. So when it says, I'm in prison... That's what it means. I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Why? On behalf, who pair is the Greek word? For you guys, for you Gentiles. I am a prisoner for you. For you. And that's when the ADD kicks in. He's like, "For you. What does that mean?" And he goes off and he tells him, "What does it mean to be for you? Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you." How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. He says, I, I am a steward of the grace of God. A steward is someone who is just a manager. He represents. So my daughter, she goes and watches the neighbor's cat. She feeds the cat. She pets the cat. She changes the litter. And at the end of the week, Lord willing, the thing had not died. Or maybe if you don't like cats, it did die. I don't know. It's your goal. But she stewarded that cat. At the end, there's going to be a reckoning, an account. And if she's done well, there's a little money, a little do me for Right? He says, that's me. I am a manager. I am a steward of God's grace. I am a steward to who? To the Gentiles for the gospel. And don't think that Paul for a moment liked the Gentiles originally. He didn't even like the Jews, let alone the Gentiles. He despised them. But one day on the way to Damascus to arrest some more Christians, God knocks him off his donkey, converts him to faith in Christ. And now he's got a new identity in Christ, and God says, I've given you a new job. You're going to stand before kings and Israel and Gentiles, and you're going to proclaim the gospel. And so Paul says, now there's there's no Jew and Greek. There's no slave and free. There's no male and female. In Christ we are one. He says, I don't hate anymore. God has sent me to the Gentiles to proclaim the gospel. And that was a mystery, verse 3. Remember, the word mystery does not mean something mysterious. It has that connotation in English. It's not something that you can go figure out. Oh, no. What's going to happen on season four, Downton? Lady Sybil, dead. Matthew, dead. Oh, no. And everyone that didn't see that coming, come on, y'all. Everyone knew Matthew was going to die, <laughs> right? Some of you are like, "What is he talking about? Go watch Downton Abbey. That's all you. But it's not something that's hidden that you've got to figure out and go look online and look for spoilers. It's something that you would never come up with in a million, zillion years. It has to be revealed to you. That is the mystery, right? And that's what he says, verse four. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. The Old Testament saints did not know this mystery. It had to be revealed to the holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one who showed what this mystery was. What is the mystery? Not that Gentiles will become followers of God. That was clear in the Old Testament. Abraham was originally a Gentile. Ruth was a Gentile. Rahab a Gentile, Nebuchadnezzar a Gentile. All these people come in Jerusalem were Gentiles. It's not that the Gentiles would be saved. God has always been a God of the nations. It's what? A ph- verse 6. This mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. The two, one, remember last week? that this, this hot dog eating, shrimp, low country boil eating group over here. And this group over here that's circumcised and wants to celebrate Passover. And they won't touch it. They are now one. They are fellow heirs in the church. That was the mystery. No one have ever would have thought that. No one ever would have come up with that. They are fellow heirs, they are members of the same body. they are partakers of the promise. Why? Through the gospel that God reconciled both Gentile and Jew in himself, that those who were far off the Gentiles, those who were near the Jews, all had to be coming through Jesus and His cross. And now they are one. That was the mystery. Now don't lose lose the trees in the middle of the forest here. Why is he even mentioning this? He's saying, I, a Jew, was sent to the Gentiles. I love Jesus. Jesus tells me to go to the Gentiles and tell them about this. That's what I am doing. And because I have told Gentiles everywhere about God being reconciled to man through Jesus, they hate me, and I am in jail for that. I'm in jail because I love the Gentiles, and God loves the Gentiles, and they don't want to hear it. And the Jews don't want to hear it either. They don't want to hear Gentiles and Jews one." No one wants to hear it, so they throw me in jail. And that is why I'm suffering, verse 1, for you. I am a prisoner for you. And here's the first lesson for us this morning. Why does God allow suffering sometimes? Why do we face struggles? Sometimes we suffer for the benefit of others. Sometimes God allows you to struggle and suffer. Why? For the benefit of other people. What's typically the first response when you face struggles? Why, God, me? We focus on the inside. We turn ourselves in we look in and we forget everybody else and we start comparing. Well, they don't have to do this and they didn't have to do this. And why this it struggle with me? And why is it so easy for them? But isn't it amazing that Paul never does that? He doesn't say, well, why am I in jail? I'm faithful. I'm a good preacher. Right? This isn't fair. He doesn't say, please encourage me. Please send me letters. Send me care packages with touchy rolls and tasty cakes in it. He says, I am in prison and I am glad. It is for your glory. I want to encourage you in the middle of my suffering. I'm thinking about you in the middle of my struggle. What a perspective. And think about that. He's thinking, okay, I got some time on my hands. What should I do? I'll I'll write some letters. That's a good idea. Got plenty of time. So what did he do? He writes, writes some letters. He writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philemon, his second imprisonment, he's released, his second imprisonment, he writes 2 Timothy. Now if he's thinking, oh, woe is me, isn't this horrible, this is not fair, he doesn't write these letters. What are we missing in the New Testament canon if Paul doesn't write these letters? Think about it. The greatest passage in all the New Testament on marriage, Ephesians 5, we don't get it if Paul's thinking about himself. We don't get Philippians 2, the kenosis, the emptying of God. We don't get Colossians 1, the, the greatest chapter on the deity and humanity of Christ in the New Testament. We don't get rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We don't get whatever is pure and, and, and holy. Think on these things. We don't get 2 Timothy, my favorite New Testament letter, is last will and testament. If he's thinking about only himself. We don't get this great book, Philemon, on race relationship and, and slave master relationship in the New Testament. We don't get any of it. If Paul's thinking only about himself and because he wasn't, we have 2000 years of church history where people are encouraged and challenged because he was thinking about others. And I know it's hard and I'm not trying to 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 downplay suffering and struggles. I'm not because they are real. But in the middle of those. Sometimes it's helpful to ask God. What can you use Here. So that I can encourage someone else. Because when you come through struggle and affliction, you have powerful credibility in the lives of other people. Powerful. I've never, never had cancer, none of my close relatives have. I, I have no credibility in that. But some of you have. Some of you have lived through it. Some of you have lost patient people to it. And you can minister in the lives of this person over here who's going through it ten times better than I can because you can speak into exactly how that feels. You've suffered through depression. That person's got depression. You have anxiety. They have anxiety. You have a kid who wandered off. You have a husband who was caught in pornography. You've lost your job for six months. And you have incredible, powerful credibility to speak in the lives of other people who are facing the same things. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in His affliction." I mean, comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. You are comforted so that you can comfort in turn. That's how the body works. This is why authenticity in the body is essential. This is why, in your small group or in your whatever group, when someone says, "How you doing?" What's the common answer? Great. Awesome. Blessed. I mean, you just were run over by a car and your cat died and your brain was amputated, but you're fine. Right? Everything's great. I don't have a brain anymore, but it's great. It's It's not okay to lie. It is okay to say, you know what? It's hard right now. And I haven't slept in two weeks. And I don't know where, how we're going to pay the mortgage next month. Oh, I don't know where me and my husband are going. Because it gives opportunities for the body to know you and to serve you and to love you well. That's what it does. And you'll be amazed when you come through those things or in your midst of how God will bring those people into your life. That you can minister to, or that will minister to you. Hey, I did this six months ago. We were just out through this. I know exactly what you're doing. And some of the greatest ministries are birthed out of these kind of circumstances a passion for this, coming through this. One of our couples, and I had permission to share this, their little daughter, the Cavallies, has, has leukemia, and they've been dealing with this for a year. And meeting with him a few weeks ago, he's talking about how he's going to start volunteer chaplaincy. Why? Because the chaplains over at the hospital have been such, such a great encouragement. He wants to go and be a part of that and be an encouragement to others. And he knows exactly what those people sitting in that room are going through because he's been there. And that's what we're talking about. Just letting those struggles that you have faced in your life, whatever it may be, and letting God use those to encourage the body. Because let me tell you, someone in this church of seven, eight, whatever hundred people we have needs your investment. This, that's what a church is. It, I keep, we keep hammering this because, because some of you still don't get it. It's not coming in with your King James Bible and leaving before you get to know anybody. It is giving your life away to others. And you'll be amazed how God in his sovereignty will put you in the right place with the right person if you will just let him. If you will have that perspective and ask God, how can you use my my brokenness in somebody else's life? That's Paul. And that's what we need. Sometimes God allows suffering in our lives for the benefit of others. Well, Paul mentioned the word gospel in verse 6. And so he goes all ADD on you again, and he's off on another tangent. So gospel, verse 6, through the gospel, this happened and in verse 7. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. Literally, the word is diakonos. It's a servant. We use our English word deacon for it. He said, I'm a servant of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, and it's emphatic in the text, to me, he's amazed, to me, though I am very least of all the saints. Why would he say something like that? Is that just false humility? No, because he is literally in his own eyes, I'm the worst of the worst. Why would he say something like that? Think about Paul. Everyone's got a past, right? Everyone's got a testimony. I came out of drugs. I came out of whatever. I was divorced seven times, blah, 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 right? No one's got a past like Paul. Not only in his arrogance, but remember the early church? They didn't fear. The biggest fear was not necessarily Nero or Rome or Herod. It was Saul of Tarsus. He was the one dragging him off, trying to force him to blaspheme. He was the one standing right there as timid as Stephen is being stoned, and he's giving hearty approval to the killing of this early saint. So, in the, and when everyone's going around circle time in small group, yeah, I came from drugs. I smoked a little pot. I did a little of this. I used to kill people like you. That's, that's I'm I'm the chief, I'm the worst, I'm the least, but yet this grace was given to me. I was given grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things. And you can sense his excitement, he's pumped, he's giddy, he's probably shaking this Roman guy who's trying to sleep and he's excited, he's like, stop it. But that's just backwards, isn't it? He's in jail. He should be depressed and sad and singing, nobody no, You know, he should be doing that. But he's excited. The grace and riches in Christ and bring the light. He's excited. Why? Because he is allowing this suffering to grow in him in the image of Christ. He said, my Savior suffered unjustly. I'm experiencing that just a little bit. And it's, and it's humbling me and it's showing me the riches that I have in Christ. And instead of moving him into bitterness and angst, he's moving towards godliness and maturity. And he's, and he's winning. This guy who's pulling his arm, he ends up winning these guys to Christ. Do you realize at the end of Philippians, when he finishes the letter, he says, oh, those in Rome greet you. Those of Caesar's household. Who's he talking about? These guys that he's chained to. He's, he's, they got eight hours with them. So he's just evangelizing them to death. Finally, they just believed. They're like, okay, shut up. But they become followers of Jesus because of Paul. He's using where God has him to mature him. And that's the second lesson for us. Sometimes God allows suffering in our lives. Why? For our own benefit. That's a hard lesson to learn. In fact, Tozer says he's doubtful that God can use a man greatly until he first wounds him deeply. That's a hard lesson. But to mature and grow and refine you so that you don't put so much stock in this planet, into that job, into that career. And it's okay, y'all, to ask those why questions. It's okay. But at some point in the game, we need to start asking that question, what? What is God trying to do? What is he trying to show me? And our first response is typically when we face these things is try to make the pain go away. Americans are great at, at self-medicating, whether it's through actual medication, whether it's through alcohol, whether it's through another job, a shopping spree, the next relationship, whatever it is. Working harder. We're great at self-medicating. Trying to make the depression go away. Trying to make the dis- discouragement go away. Trying to make the disappointment. And I'm not saying we need to be sadist and, and just wallow in it. But at some point we need to say, God, what are you trying to teach me? Because it's through hardship often. where God molds us the best. And we, we get this in the physical realm. They don't make medical school easy so anyone can graduate. Otherwise I'd be like your doctor. Woo, look at me. Operation, eh, you know. <laughs> up, the, up the road, 60 miles. Paris Island. They don't bring him in to make cupcakes. It's not cooking school. Now, I'm not saying cooking school's not hard. Don't write me a letter. <laughs> they make Marines. And so, what they do is they tear them down and they destroy them and they build them back up to a Marine. And it's hardship and it's suffering and it's a hard several weeks. But at the end, there's a refined warrior. And that's sometimes what god does if you think back i think back at the hardest times of my life and i haven't had i don't know anything like dave and amy and china who are getting thrown out i don't know anything like that i don't know anything about this like this iranian pastor who doesn't get to see his family and he's in jail and beaten i don't know anything about that but i think about some of the hardest times and i, t- I would never in a million years choose these i wouldn't choose several miscarriages with my wife i would never choose that I would never choose a horrendous car accident which greatly hurt my wife and totaled our only car and, and never choose those things. I'd never choose being so broke that jack-in-the-box was a, a high-end meal for us. But you know what? I would never at this point in my life take them away either because those are the things that God used to mold us. Right? Those are the things he shaped us, and we look back on that as the best time, although it was the hardest time. And I'm not trying to make light of these things. I'm not trying to make light of circumstances because they're real. And I don't want you to doubt God's love in the midst of these circumstances because our circumstances are not the measure of God's love. The cross is the measure of God's love. That's the measure of God's love. Your circumstances are what he's allowing to make you more like his son. But you need to understand that God knows your pain, that you have a high priest who can sympathize with you, one who has been tempted in all ways, yet who was without sin, that he entered into it willingly and was not immune for it, so he was immune to it so he could identify with us. I was re- I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my seven-year-old and my twelve year old, and we read every night, and we just finished The Magician's Nephew, which is my favorite. And Diggory is the main character in this in this book, if you haven't read it. And he is the one who is guilty of bringing the white witch to Narnia. It's his fault. He's the one who corrupted Narnia in its first hours. And Aslan tells him, I will have to deal with this eventually. I.e. he's going to have to die. Because of Diggory. And Diggory has no understanding of who Aslan is. And Diggory doesn't even understand what he's getting into. But he approaches Aslan because his mama back home in London is dying. And he desperately wants something to help her. And he goes to this lion and he looks in the lion's eyes. And before he even asks the lion to help him with his mom, the lion is crying. And he understands that Aslan knows his pain. And understands where he's at. And C.S. Lewis had such a great ability to capture the heart of the scripture and the heart of Christ. Who entered in to your pain. And who will not leave and forsake and who knows. He he experienced it. And if you're suffering and if you're struggling and if there's issues, it's because he wants to mold you to be more like him. And that is not easy. Not for broken vessels. Not for jars of clay. But yet on the other side is glory. Sometimes we struggle and suffer for the benefit of others and sometimes we struggle for our own benefit. Paul continues, and he's giving Canala's purpose statement. He's saying, I do this, why? Verse 10. So that. This is the purpose. So that through the church, and underline those words, not through Billy Graham, not through Charles Wesley, not through John Calvin, not through the Pope, not through Peter, not through Paul, not through any individual. Through what? The church. The body of Christ. Anybody who has an issue with the body of Christ has a problem with this verse. Because it's through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities. It's as if God is saying this. I need the manifold wisdom of myself to be revealed. And that word manifold, it's a great word. It just means the the multifaceted, the multicolored, the many folds. This wisdom of God, this plan of God, this everything's heading towards Christ. Chapter 1, verse 10. The redemption of man through Christ. The reconciliation of Jew and Greek. Through Christ, this whole beautiful plan where man runs away from God, God redeems, God rescues, God will restore. The manifold wisdom of God, he's talking about that whole plan. He says, I need that to get known. I want it to be made known. How am I going to do it? Do I send a prophet? Do I send an angel? What do I do? He says, it's the church. The church is the one who makes it known. You say, the church, have you not looked at the church in America? It is broke. Paul knows the church is broke. He wrote to Corinth, Colossae, Philippi. He knows they're all broke. But that is the wisdom of God, that through these broken people, the wisdom of God may be made known. And that was the plan for all eternity past. This was according, verse 11, to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, in whom we have boldness and accents with confidence through our faith in him. It's the brilliance of the plan that broken people will pronounce the manifold wisdom of God, that everything is headed back to Him. Everything here is broken. Relationships are broken. Marriages are broken. There's wars and rumors of wars. People's bodies are breaking. I played soccer for like a minute and a half yesterday. I couldn't walk this morning. All right? We're breaking down, We're, we're returning to the dust from which we came. But everything is going towards Christ. Chapter 1, verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And the church's job is to reveal, to proclaim the manifold wisdom of God that everything is united and will be united in Christ, that he will rule and reign. And one of the greatest ways that you can do that as the church is to in the middle of struggle to not lose heart. How does he close it? I ask you, his ADD moment is over. Don't lose heart. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You don't need to lose heart. Why? Because you know where it's all headed. You have the plan. It's been revealed to you. You know where it ends. You don't need to lose hope in the midst of it because you are proclaiming the manifold wisdom of God, that the glory of God is greater than anything that can happen. And the last reason... Sometimes we struggle and suffer. It's so simply that we will make known the glory of God, the manifold wisdom of God, the church, Jesus' body, whether it's by coming alongside this person who's struggling or by worshiping in the middle of it like the Apostle Paul. Whatever it is that you are declaring to the heavens, the manifold wisdom of God. And look specifically who he says we're proclaiming it to. He says you're proclaiming it to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly places. What's he talking about? He's talking the angelic realm. The demons and the angels in the invisible realm. Your life is on display. Do you realize that not just people see you, angels and demons. Do you realize that angels come to church services and they watch? And they observe. And even the enemies of God, the fallen angels, watch and they observe. Your life is on display. Remember Job? The heavens are watching Job as he is just oppressed to see what would happen. Luke 15, what does Jesus say? When one sinner repents, the angels do what? It's the Super Bowl in heaven. It's like the you know the guy running down the sideline. He's 40, 35, 30, 25. It's like he's on point one of the spiritual laws. He's at the 40. He's at point two. He's hearing about his sin. Oh, where's he going to go? He's at the 20. Oh, he's bullet. He's, he's, oh, is he's asking questions. Oh. He believes, he believes, and the angels go crazy, and they're watching, they're watching what happens. Your life is on display, say, no one knows what's going on, no one sees my struggles, someone does, and you may not be, anyone in the world might not know, but you might be a proclamation to the angels in heaven that God's glory is greater, and these angels, they 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 don't get it. They long to see and know what you know. The Old Testament prophets, Peter said, they were writing for us. They didn't even understand what they were writing, but they were writing for us. And he says, things in which angels long to look. The angels long to understand what it means to be redeemed. They have no clue. They have no clue what it means to be reconciled. They have no clue what it means to have the spirit of the living God inside of them. It blows their mind. They will never in heaven sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound. They saved a wretch like me. That's that's our song, that's not theirs. They'll never sing, my Jesus I love thee, I know thou art mine. And mansions of glory, why? Because he didn't go to prepare a place for them, he went to prepare a place for you. And so they long to look, and when you worship in the middle of your struggles, and you utilize them, you are proclaiming to the angels and to the enemies of God, that God is great. He is greater than anything that may happen. That's what you're proclaiming. And to the enemies, you're saying, you may kill me, but you kill me, you're just putting me where I want to be. You're putting me where my glory is. You're making that proclamation. So Paul, 2 Corinthians says this. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction... Think about that statement. For Paul, do you know what a slight momentary affliction is? Being beaten with 40 lashes, minus one. Being shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, rejected by all his friends and his peers, left alone at the end of his life, beheaded, beaten to the point of death, threatened, ignored, light momentary affliction. It's preparing us. It's getting us ready for an eternal weight of Beyond comparison, you can't you can't compare it. So, what does he say? So, don't lose heart. Because when you don't lose heart, you proclaim the manifold wisdom of God to a world that needs to hear it. I know some of you are struggling. I know some of you you're facing it, and I don't know why. But if you have the courage, ask God. God, is this for my benefit, for the benefit of others? it just to make known your greatness. And James says this. Count it all joy, right? How do we do that? How can you count it all joy? Knowing my brothers, when you meet various trials, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let, allow command allow steadfastness to have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing jesus is making us more like himself that's what he's doing sometimes it's hard sometimes it's hot but he is molding us and refining us into the image of himself as a church we want to be there for others when it's happening but we want to let pray. Let's worship. Father, I thank you for your goodness. And thank you for the reality of Scripture that we will struggle sometimes, but that you are bigger than those things and that you have suffered like us. And Father, for the, the hurt and the pain and the, and the issues that are going on, Lord, many times because of it's just common endemic suffering just because we live in this broken world. May the body comfort and, and weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and laugh with those who laugh. May we function the way you've called us to, Lord. May we not be so selfish that it's about us, but giving ourselves to one another. Father, I pray for the person in this room who is just down, that they would be open and honest with that so that they can get the encouragement they need. Father, for the person in this room that doesn't know you, I pray that you would open your eyes to the fact that you have offered forgiveness and reconciliation through your son. Help us to worship with our lives, even in the midst of struggling. Declare and proclaim to the world the manifold wisdom of our God. To him be the glory, Christ's name. Let's stand and worship.